Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. This will be my third reflections on Peter Kingsley's book, Catafalque. And I want to focus on the distinctions between prophecy and precognition and also imagination versus what the philosopher Henri Corbin has called the imaginal. Let's start with the question of prophecy, because throughout this book, as I've indicated previously, and I want to recommend to you that if you haven't viewed my previous monologues, it might be a good idea. It might be helpful for you uh, before getting into this one. But in any case, Peter Kingsley makes a big point of saying that Jung wasn't just a scientist, wasn't even just a great psychologist or even a great philosopher. He was a prophet. And that puts him into a totally different category. And, uh, of course, the subtitle of Kingsley's book, Carl Jung and the End of Humanity, suggests that Jung has prophesied the end of humanity. And he actually goes into some detail to suggest that Jung had many visions of the destruction of humanity, one before the First World War, another one before the Second World War, and yet another one before his death. And he points out how Jungians in general have tended to minimize this prophetic aspect of Jung's work because, well, you can imagine you've set yourself up as a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist. You have a shingle out. You're trying to attract patients. This is your livelihood now. You certainly want to present yourself for insurance purposes, if you can collect insurance, as operating within a medical scientific model, not a prophetic religious model. But Jung himself was rather conflicted on this score. In fact, Peter Kingsley points out that apparently, and he documents this uh, in great detail, Jung was not pleased with the idea of setting up Jung institutes all over the world for the training of psychotherapists. In some ways, he felt that his teachings were being debased in this way, which is odd because he certainly was a psychiatrist and his work certainly did focus on the question of healing and therapy and psychotherapy. There's no doubt that this was a very important part of Jung's life. And indeed, he participated in many therapeutic uh, conclaves and interactions, even at the Jung Institute itself in Zurich. So, there is a paradox here. There are many paradoxes, to be honest. And uh, Peter Kingsley harps over and over and over again about how Jung proclaimed, I'm glad that I'm Jung and not a Jungian, just as Christ might have said, I- I'm glad that I'm Jesus Christ and not a Christian, because it seems to Peter Kingsley that there's a natural process, but when he bemoans that these original teachings are never fully understood. Never. Um, now, that's an important point. 
And it has to do with the methodology used by academics known as hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a form of textual analysis. How do you analyze a text? And naturally, the whole process of hermeneutics, which is very important for historians, for literary critics, for the all of the humanities, hermeneutics is a primary method of analysis, but it is deeply flawed in one sense and yet deeply enriched in the same sense because whoever analyzes a text is interpreting it through the lens of their own consciousness. And that consciousness is influenced naturally by their values, by their upbringing, by their culture. So it is never possible to interpret any text exactly the way it was originally intended. Jung himself admitted, we can never, ever escape from our own culture, from the biases and prejudices of our own culture. They're so deeply embedded in our language, there's no getting around it. And yet, if Jung was indeed a prophet, and the Red Book certainly suggests that he through the process of active imagination, delve deeply into his own unconscious mind or subconscious mind, where he encountered a being like a teacher, Philemon, who became uh, his teacher. He called him the father of prophets. And the teachings of Philemon were recorded and became the basis for Jung's entire vision of the human unconscious, of the human psyche. Now, when Jung essentially predicts the great wars that he lived through and possibly the end of humanity, yes, that seems to be his final prediction. <laughs> in fact, he died in 1961 and he actually suggested around the time of his death that he envisioned humanity and certainly Western civilization only had another 50 years to go. Well, it's now more than 50 years since that date. It is 58 years at this moment, and we're still here. So, how does Peter Kingsley deal with that? He suggests that actually even though we may not think so, because we're blinded to the fact that civilization is already dead. And, you know, you can see that is true in a poetic sense if you look around you, but wasn't it also true during Jung's own lifetime? I mean, he lived through the horrors of World War I and World War II. If anyone wanted to pronounce civilization already dead, he could have done it then. There are many reasons to think, and many popular writers, such as uh, Steven Pinker, whom I've had the privilege of interviewing long ago when his career was just starting, who, who says things are getting better, not worse, at least in terms of uh, the question of violence in human society. So, one wonders, why does... Peter Kingsley focus on that idea that Jung's vision is actually really true because he was a deep prophet when we're still here. Civilization isn't over, but uh, Peter Kingsley 
finds ways of addressing it by saying, well, there's, uh, we're at the beginning of a new age, but the new age won't arrive for another 600 years or so. We're not responsible for it. We have nothing to say about it. So we're already dead. Our civilization, the great Western civilization, uh, has no more life left in it. We're just behaving like mechanical robots so caught up in worship of the rational that we don't even see it. And he points out, I'm showing you this picture right now from William Blake. It was one that had been bookmarked by Jung, the son of reason. And it shows a man worshiping this hideous son. The idea being that the worship of rationality, that is elevating rationality, logic, the intellect, which, uh, or, or thought thinking itself as, as one of the human functions. Jung had four functions. You may recall thinking, feeling, intuiting, and sensing. But Jung bemoaned, and I think rightly so, that the thinking function has become way too dominant in our culture, especially at the expense of intuition. Because intuition is really where Jungian psychology emerged from. Jung took a dive into the volcano, following in the footsteps of the early philosopher Empedocles, who, according to some legends, threw himself into a volcano at the time of his death in order to, um, I think the term is apotheosisize, to become divine. by diving into the volcano. The volcano also a symbol of of the cup, the crater, which is another word for the cup of the Holy Grail. It evokes the Grail legends. Because, and I want to get to this now, this is the distinction in a way between prophecy and precognition. Let's talk about that for a moment. Now, I've done many interviews on this channel on precognition. There's a lot of scientific data, and I think you'll be especially interested in an interview. I'm linking to it now with Stephen Schwartz, who is one of the founders of the field of remote viewing and has done a number of studies with people using remote viewing to look at the future. And uh, the practical applications of precognition and remote viewing are well established, even by my friend Ed May, who considers himself a physicalist, a materialist, but says, yes, you know, precognition is it's a scientific problem that will eventually be solved within the materialistic model. And he's received millions of dollars in funding from the federal government to pursue that. So, so that's precognition. And as a parapsychologist, when we examine precognition, we can say for the most part, it's right or it's wrong. If you have information that you believe is relevant to a target in the future, we can evaluate it in different ways and we can assign it a, a as a hit or a miss. But with prophecy, we often think that prophecy is about foretelling the future. And uh, in popular parlance, of course, uh, that's what it is. And, and there's the myth of Cassandra, the, the great prophet in Greek mythology who was cursed by the gods to have the gift of prophecy, but never to be believed. And this is also part of 
precognition or part of prophecy that the idea that prophets are never believed in their own lifetime. And furthermore, Peter Kingsley makes a point to say that true prophets rebel against it. They don't want to be a prophet. And he quotes Jung and the prophets Habakkuk and Amos and many other prophets. Uh, Joachim of Fiori is saying, I am not a prophet. They don't want to be prophets. It's something that they are reluctantly forced to do because some voice of the divine is speaking through them. And in the case of Empedocles, if you read his early philosophy, which reads like poetry, like mystical incantation, he is writing about logic and, and uh, questions of epistemology and ontology, but he expresses it poetically as information given to him by a mysterious goddess. Now, that's not so strange. We have in our era uh, Ramanujan, the famous uh, Hindu mathematician who worked at Oxford uh, in England and, and came up with many, many important mathematical theorems people are still exploring decades after his death. But he claimed that his mathematical insights were also given to him by a goddess. And following the uh, dictates that Peter Kingsley has laid out, the role of a prophet is to report exactly what comes to them, what is given to them. Not to distort it, not to change it, not to apply hermeneutic interpretations, but just to lay it out straight. Well, that's a very, very difficult thing to do, which is why there are so few prophets. In fact, many religious traditions simply say the era of prophecy is over. In Islam, it's known that Muhammad was the seal of the prophets, meaning the last prophet to ever appear. The same claim was made much earlier, actually, by the uh, prophet Mani, the founder of Manichaeism, who also claimed to be the seal of the prophets. But generally speaking, in modern sociological scholarship, there's a problem with prophecy, and that is it is often confused with precognition, and prophets are often wrong. I mean, how many times have people acknowledged by their followers as great prophets prophesied the end of the world? If you look historically speaking, you'll find out over and over and over again in many different eras and ages, prophets have said this is the end of the world. So, the sociologist Leon Festinger, back in the 1950s, published a classical text called When Prophecy Fails. And he argued that what happens when prophecy fails is that the followers of the prophet find a way to reinterpret the prophecy so that it didn't fail. So, in uh, this case, and it's a very interesting case of a UFO cult with a medium or channeler who had information that the world was going to end on a certain date back in the 1950s. And when it didn't end, Festinger was uh, researching this group, and he noticed that many of the followers reinterpreted the prophecies in different ways to say, well, the world has already ended, but we just don't know it, very much like Peter Kingsley is suggesting. 
and he's and he's pointing out this is this is one of the logical flaws attached to the whole idea of of the you know poor people who are uh, engaged in this pathetic practice of following uh, in the footsteps of prophets how they can be misled and so misled that even when the prophet is obviously wrong they refuse to accept the facts that are right in front of them now, the irony is that one could apply the same logic to Festinger himself because many of the followers in this UFO cult drifted away. They, they left the cult because they realized that the prophet uh, or, uh, had failed in her precognition at that time. But really what Peter Kingsley is pointing out is that true prophecy is not about precognition. In fact, if anything, it's about retrocognition or seeing deeply into the past, understanding the past, understanding the real meaning of the past, so that we can understand what is actually going on in the present and what is likely to occur in the future. And in particular, prophets have a way of saying, you know, if you don't change your ways, this terrible thing will befall you. That's usually the pattern of prophecy. So there is this important distinction between prophecy and precognition. And I think it's really true to say that Jung and other great prophets, perhaps Jesus, perhaps Muhammad and the uh, Jewish prophets, their genius wasn't in forecasting the future. Their genius was seeing deeply into the present. And that's what we so often fail to do because we project our own thoughts, our own culture, our own beliefs onto what's going on and have a hard time seeing it for what it really is. But prophets are individuals who are able to get outside of themselves in that regard. And it's a rare trait and I want to jump a bit and talk about the distinction between the imaginal and the imaginary. This is a distinction that was developed by the philosopher Henri Corbin, who was a great student of Persian mysticism, and in particular the Persian Sufi mystic Surah Wadi, who was the founder of a Sufi order and was supposedly, although the historians are disputing what really happened, but supposedly he was put to death by uh, a ruler under pressure from the ulams or the religious scholars because Surah Wadi suggested that prophecy went back uh, even before the uh, Abrahamic prophets to the early Greeks. And uh, not only that, Surah Wadi claimed apparently that he himself was a prophet centuries after Muhammad, and for that he was supposedly put to death. Now, Henri Corbin was at the time a, a young philosopher and scholar and uh, traveled to Istanbul where he was going to uh, translate the uh, works of Surah Wadi, which were stored in Istanbul on microfilm, uh, and translate them into French. He was actually a French philosopher. And um, World War II broke out and he was stuck in Istanbul for six years, which he spent largely in solitude with the writings of Surah Wadi. And 
after six years, he came to believe that he had established contact at the inner level with the spirit of Surawadi, that Surawadi was in effect initiating him into the mysteries of uh, his style of Sufi mysticism known as illumination, or uh, I believe the term is Ishraq. But the point being that uh, illumination is based on discovering an inner light within oneself, an inner light that is so deep and so profound that it represents the very source of our being. And this inner light is beyond all conditioning, beyond all culture, beyond all societal norms. And here is the point that Henri Corbin made is that his experiences were imaginal, not imaginary, which meant that they were very real, even though they were, you could say, psychic experiences. They were of a mental nature, but not imaginary, not a fantasy, but something profoundly real, realer than physical reality, even. Now, this is something very rare, and there's an unusual paradox that seems to occur when people have such experiences, and that is, how do you communicate to other people that your inner imagery is real and not imaginary? The problem is, of course, that nobody else is capable of judging. And therefore, people typically tend to think that whatever you believe is real, you're deluded because you're just lost in your own fantasies. And so, the uh, various Islamic scholars with whom Corbin interacted urged him to uh, accept initiation from a Sufi master and convert to Islam and become a, a real Sufi, a real mystic. And he would say, no, I already have my own inner teacher, Surawadi, has been teaching me. I don't need uh, an external teacher. And they said of him, well, you're just lost in your own fantasies. Now, these same people, interestingly enough, Islamic uh, traditionalists like his colleague, Hossein Nasser, uh, criticized Carl Jung in much the same way. They called Jungian teachings diabolic, satanic, misguided, and so on, that Jung was pretending to be a prophet, that he was caught up in his own fantasies. And Henri Corbin defended Jung every time. We know this from the writings of Hossein Nasser, for example, as well as uh, testimony of uh, Corbin's own late spouse, I believe her name was Stella. Corbin defended Jung, not because Corbin was a Jungian, uh, Corbin defended Jung because he had come to understand through his very close friendship with Carl Jung that Jung was speaking out of direct experience, just as he himself was about Surawadi. They had many other differences, and Corbin certainly never became a Jungian. In fact, Corbin was like Jung in the sense that he was outraged at the way the Jungians were treating Jung. Corbin shared that with Jung. Corbin also wrote 
a, a very eloquent review of Jung's great book, Answer to Job, in which he seemed to understand that what Jung was doing in that book was very prophetic. He was arguing with God, which is what prophets do. In fact, Kingsley claims, uh, and I think it's likely true, that, that Jung believed Corbin might have been the only person who really understood him. Now, the tricky thing is this. The uh, Hossein Nasser and the other Islamic traditionalists are accusing Corbin of getting caught up in his fantasies, just as they accuse Jung of getting caught up in satanic fantasies, because only by practicing authentic traditionalism, as, as they saw it, could you achieve true mystical insight. And they really resented the idea that any Jungian would think that this pathetic psychology, in their view, had any religious significance. Of course, Peter Kingsley, Kingsley is saying almost the opposite, that yes, it is a pathetic psychology because it ought to be viewed as something of enormous religious significance. So, you have a situation where everybody is accusing the other guy of acting out of uh pure intellect, worshiping the god of rationality instead of the goddess of direct experience. That seems to be the problem all the way around. And in fact, Corbin has accused uh, Hossein Nasser and the other uh, traditionalists of exactly that. So, we're left with this paradox of how do we distinguish the authentic, imaginal realm, the realm of pure spirit, from the realm of fantasy. There, I think there are many gray areas. It's not easy, especially for any outsider to distinguish, and even those who are engaged in the experience. How do we know that we can trust ourselves? And the truth is, there are no rational standards that can be applied. Uh, it's a paradox. And uh, it's fraught with danger. And the danger, is, as I've discussed earlier, is the danger of psychological inflation. I do think one guideline might be useful uh, provided by Corbin. He believed, and probably accurately so, that true imaginal experience is very rare. It doesn't come easily. It be, requires enormous courage, enormous uh, willingness to confront the ugly depths within ourselves, to see our own darkness, which is something I think all individuals tend to shy away from. We like to, even, <laughs> even when we pride ourselves in thinking, yes, I'm a kind of person who can confront the worst within myself. Can you really? <laughs> or is that another dodge? I mean, Kingsley seems to suggest that every time we get close to that real, authentic, burning, lava-hot essence within ourselves, we turn away. The heat is too great. Now, as a parapsychologist, I'm in the middle of both worlds. I think we do have a handle using uh, the empirical methods of parapsychology on questions of precognition, prophecy, intuition, insight, 
creativity. I do think there is a role for the rational mind. And, and of course, obviously, so did Jung, so does Kingsley, so did Corbin and Surawati all think that. The question is, what is that role? What is the proper relationship between the rational mind and the other psychic functions? Kingsley suggests that ultimately the psyche strives for balance. And when things get out of balance, as they are now in our culture, other movements erupt in order to restore balance. And that's where we are right now in an out-of-balance culture with many movements uh, across the board erupting to attempt to restore balance. And then the guardians of uh the status quo, trying to stamp out those movements in, in various ways. So you could say it's an exciting time to be alive. And I'll leave you with that thought. Thank you for being with me. Thank you.